Well, let me invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. As many of you know, right about the time that um, the pandemic was hitting, we were wrapping up 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and uh, decided to, to take a, book, a break from the book of 1 Corinthians. Thought it might be uh, more prudent at the time to go to some other texts. Uh, but here we are today and want to jump back into the book of 1 Corinthians together and uh, keep making headway through this book. So we find ourselves today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, when we were in high school, my younger brother Matt started indicating that he wasn't feeling well, that there was something on his side that was hurting him a little bit, but he was young and healthy. So at first, none of us were really very concerned that anything was actually wrong with him or that he was very sick. And uh, actually, as his older brother, I was probably cracking all kinds of jokes like, hey, Matt, maybe, you know, you just had a little bit too much fiber for breakfast and you're not feeling so good. Or, hey, Matt, maybe you just got hit playing sports, <laughs> probably by me. Uh, but soon we realized, oh, he's actually like he's hurting. He's hurting really bad. And uh, we realized something must be up. And with each hour that went by, Matt's pain was exponentially increasing. And uh, off to the doctor he went and the doctor quickly diagnosed him and said, Yep, it's your appendix, and it needs to be removed ASAP. It's got to go uh, as soon as possible. And if not, if that doesn't happen, your appendix could actually burst and end up infecting the other organs of your body with toxins that you don't want. Uh, the Bible portrays the church as a human body made up of many different members, or we might uh, say parts. And there are times in the life of the church where a sinful member of the body actually needs to be removed. And obviously that's a painful procedure, but it is critical for multiple reasons, and one of which is actually the health of the entire body. But it comes as no surprise, though, that churches often fail to deal with sin in their midst. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we find that the church of Corinth that Paul was writing to actually had major, major sin in its midst. But, and Paul is extremely bothered by that, but even more bothered by the fact that there's great sin in their midst. Paul is bothered by the fact that they're not dealing with it. It's like the church was just pushing this sin under the rug. And unfortunately, that is a very, very common thing in church life. And I think that God has given us 1 Corinthians chapter 5 so that we would know what to do when grievous sin enters our church, when it enters the body. And so what I'd like to do, today we'll just look at the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But let's go ahead and read this whole chapter because it's a unit. And I think that will become quite clear as I read it. So follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Um, that's not exactly like Psalm 23, is it? You know, I mean, we, we have these texts that, that, that just really warm our hearts. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And we love texts like that. And yet God has also given us texts like this because we need these too. And they are critical and extremely important. And what we want to do this morning is look at two major concerns that Paul brings up from this text. He actually brings up several concerns in this larger passage. We'll just look at two this morning from verses 1 to 5. Here's Paul's first concern and something that ought to concern us. A church could be unbelievably compromised. That's his first concern. And that becomes apparent in verses 1 to 2. Paul ends up calling out the sin of one individual man in the body. And then he actually ends up implicating the whole church. This is a whole church thing. In fact, it would appear that Paul, as I mentioned, is more grieved by the church's response to the man's sin. Even more so than he's concerned about the actual sin itself. And as we'll see, the, the sin is awful. Compromise can happen on both the individual and the corporate level. It, it can happen uh, with a person within the body, and, and it can happen to the whole church. It can happen on the individual level. Paul begins in verse 1. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And Paul is dismayed. He is shocked. He's even horrified. That, there's a, that there is major sin like this in the body, and it's not being dealt with. And the sin that he refers to is porneia, which is translated here as sexual immorality. Uh, that term is a, a broad umbrella type of term that applies to all kinds of sexual sin, sexual deviation from the divine standard. It really is a very broad term. What kind or flavor of this sin was going on in Corinth? And Paul goes on to say that it is of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. In other words, it was infrequent and we might even say condemned even by unbelievers. Whose moral standards, uh, frankly, aren't all that high to begin with oftentimes. But we could recognize that even the pagans, even people who have no relationship with Jesus, and even people whose moral standard is actually very low, they have a moral standard too. They have a code. And the sin going on in Corinth violated even the pagans' code. Uh, as an example of, the, of this code, let's say that a major pedophile gets arrested and he ends up in prison. 
well, there's a very good chance that he's going to end up in protest, protected custody. Why is that? Well, if he gets put out there in general population with all the rest of the prisoners, it's probably not going to end well for him. He's most likely going to get beat up there in general, general pop and maybe even get killed there. Because even a crook realizes, even a crook knows that, that you don't hurt a kid like that. Especially in that way. Everyone knows that's against the code. And the sin that's going on here in Corinth was in that type of category. It was utterly despicable. And, and Paul is going to get even more specific. It's the sin of incest. Verse 1 continues, For a man has his father's wife. A church member in Corinth is carrying on an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. And we get the idea she's probably not actually part of the church because Paul is trying to encourage the church to deal with the man, not her. She seems to be outside of the body, probably an unbeliever. And I say stepmother here because in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 7 to 8, the sin of incest was condemned. And in that passage, uh, the, the language of father's wife refers to a stepmother. And in the, the previous verse, verse 7 of Leviticus 18, um, different language is used for a person's mother. So most people believe that this man is carrying on a relationship with his father's wife or his stepmother. It is possible for a church to be unbelievably compromised on the individual level. It is possible that among the individual people sitting here in this room today, there is great, great spiritual compromise. And it is also possible for that to be the case corporately of our whole church body. Compromise can happen on the corporate level. Look at how verse 2 begins. Paul says, with all this going on, and you are arrogant. You've got this sin in your midst and you are proud. So there, there's arrogance. And the question is, uh, what is it that, that, that this church was proud about? And it's, it's an important question. And option number one would be that this church, that they're proud of the sin itself and their tolerance and acceptance of it. Uh, many take that interpretation. I think it's a very good interpretation. I think it's a very likely interpretation. And it may be the right one that, that these people are proud of sin in their midst. And uh, there are many churches today that that would very much be the case. They're, they're very proud of the fact that well, we are tolerant and we are accepting of what God would call sin in their midst. That's option number one on, on this pride idea. There's a second option that I actually think is probably to be preferred. And it is that the Corinthians were actually spiritually proud in spite of the fact that they had all this going on in their church. Prove, and it proved just how much they lacked godly wisdom and maturity. And, and the reason I say that, that view is perhaps to be preferred is you may recall uh, from the first four chapters of this book that the Corinthians thought rather highly of themselves. Uh, they were a spiritually boastful church uh, you remember Paul said to them, I hardly know a church like you that's gifted like you are. I mean, you just have this amazing array of spiritual gifts. And then you remember they're, they're boasting about their ministers. I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And they're boasting about wisdom. I mean, they, they, they're thinking of themselves in a way that they ought not to think. They're an arrogant church, spiritually. 
They thought they had spiritual knowledge, wisdom, and power. That becomes very clear in chapter 4. And so I think Paul is probably saying something like this. How can you be so spiritually arrogant? And at the same time, so morally lax. Their tolerance of sin revealed their lack of godly wisdom and maturity. And what there should have been, there should have been mourning and there should have been action taken. Look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The Corinthians should have been so grieved by what was going on in their brother's life. That they took action, hard, very painful action, uncomfortable action, but needed action to remove him from the body. This sort of mourning that Paul talks about over sin results in action. And I think we could also say that pride really is the very opposite of love. The Corinthians are proud. And what happens with pride is it makes you so concerned and focused on yourself that you fail to do the loving thing for others and for the body. And that's what's going on in Corinth. A church could be unbelievably compromised. I want to ask you a question. Is there anything in your life as an individual that if known by the church, if known by others, that the church would have to start taking steps to return you to the Lord, to correct you, or maybe even quite severe steps like what we see in this text? Is there anything in your life like that? Here's what you need to do. What you could do is go, yeah, I don't belong here. I'm out. I'm never going to change. I'm out. And that would be the wrong response. What God wants you to do is go, I have sin in my life. I need to repent of that sin. Don't leave. Deal with the sin. Make it right. Return to the Lord. And maybe a a more specific question related to sin. I mean, a a very specific type of sin is being dealt with here in this passage. And we've got this broad umbrella term, poor Nan. And I would ask you, is there any form of that in your life? Is there any form of sexual immorality or sexual impurity going on in your life? God is really clear that that is not okay. And that that's a sin. And it needs to be repented of. And another, I think, big takeaway from verses 1 and 2, sin in the church is a church problem. Sin in the life of an individual within the church is a church problem. This is our problem. And I would encourage you, do not fall into the trap of thinking that your life is your business and and nobody else's and everyone just needs to leave you alone. What we do as individuals within this body impacts the whole Body, And that's what he's going to say in, in, in verses 6 and following. Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens a whole lump? One person can, can defile a, a whole church in an unbelievable way. You are not an island. You are a part of a body. Sin in a church affects the whole church. And if you think that you are an individual in isolation and that's not the case, you don't understand the nature of the church. Almost every image God gives for the church puts us all together as a building, as a family, as a flock, 
We're together. I think an important thing that should come up in this, at this point is the fact that one of the clearest church discipline passages is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. I think that would be the one that most of us uh, would be particularly familiar with. And one of the greatest benefits, actually, of that text is that it very clearly delineates uh, the process of church discipline. And it's basically a four-step process that involves, if I could borrow the language of another, uh, confrontation that is repeated and of increasing intensity and publicity. I won't ask you to turn there to Matthew 18. I imagine many of you are familiar with it. The, the first confrontation, step one, it, it's, a, it's a one-to-one. Your brother sins against you, you go to him privately. And you confront him about that. Galatians chapter 6 would indicate the manner in, in which something like that should be done in a spirit of weak, or meekness, in a spirit-filled manner, considering yourself first, making sure there's not some beam or plank in your own eye. But this one-to-one conversation or confrontation. And then if that person refuses to, to hear that, then it moves to confrontation number two, where one or two more people come and, and have a, a similar type of conversation. And if that person refuses at that level, then it eventually goes to the whole church. And the whole church becomes aware of this. And the whole church is now seeking to restore this brother or sister and confront him. And urge him towards repentance. And if, if, if in that step he won't be returned, he won't be brought back, he just keeps saying, no, 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 I want my sin. And it finally moves to this final phase of putting him out of the church. And, and just to be clear, it is possible that each of those first uh, step, few steps in particular um, could actually be repeated multiple times. And with each of those, you're kind of getting to this point where at each level, he's just refusing to, to move. He's refusing to hear. He's refusing to really interact and, and, and work with what's going on. Some of those steps could be repeated multiple times before moving on to the next. But what's interesting in 1 Corinthians 5 is that it does not look like the church has taken any of those first few steps. Like none. It's possible But it seems very unlikely, given Paul's language in verses 1 and 2, that they've done anything. It seems they've done nothing. And what's fascinating is Paul's actually not advocating that they take the time to go back and work their way through all those steps. Quite the opposite. Paul is urging that they move immediately to the final step, get them out, and get it done. So how do we harmonize that? with what's going on in Matthew chapter 18. Well, as a general rule, Matthew 18 needs to be followed as the definitive standard. God gave it to us for a reason. But 1 Corinthians 5 clarifies that there may be times when it is actually best not to go all the way through that process. In other words, there are some sins And some situations that are so heinous, like here in 1 Corinthians 5, where the sin is actually violating even the pagan's code of conduct. Where the, the sin is so heinous and publicly damaging to the church that the best course of action is actually to immediately remove the person from the church's midst and then actually deal with him from the outside. 
And in that instance, by doing that, the church has taken its position and avoided actually the great damage of publicly communicating tolerance of what the world itself won't even tolerate. So I think it's a helpful, helpful clarification because these are the things that you get into the middle of a process and, and all of a sudden everybody's emotions are involved and those sort of things. And it's just helpful to, for some of these things to be clear in our mind before something like that would ever even happen. There's a second major concern that we want to consider, though, in verses 3 to 5. A church must remove evil members from its midst. In this passage, that is exactly what Paul tells the Corinthians that they must do with this man. And he says it multiple times in multiple ways so that we don't miss his point. In verse 2, he worded it this way, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5, he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan. In verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. And in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul has not minced his words. A church must remove evil members from its midst. And I take that word evil from the last verse of this this chapter. Verse 13. In verses 3 to 5, Paul's going to elaborate on what that should look like. And the main phrase that he uses in verses 3 to 5 is this one. You are to deliver this man to Satan. There are several teachings about this action of of what we often label church discipline that we want to note from verses 3 to 5. We're going to look at six teachings from these verses. Here's the first teaching. The need for this action is crystal clear. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Paul's not even there in person. But what he's heard is enough for him to know that what's going on in Corinth, that this is not okay. He's been given enough information, presumably from a reliable source, perhaps Chloe's household that's mentioned earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. He's been given enough information to reach a verdict on the matter. This unrepentant man must be removed from the church and it needs to happen, it needs to happen now. How do we feel about the idea of the church removing people? This concept of church discipline, particularly the final phase of it, may feel very, like a very, very uncomfortable idea for you. You know, there's something about it that just kind of feels wrong. In fact, it, it may sound and feel harsh and unloving. Like, isn't that a pretty extreme step? And yet God is quite clear that there are times when it must be done. And Paul is speaking with apostolic authority here. You guys, you can't mess around in Corinth. This has to be done. And just to be clear, incest is not the only type of sin that if unrepentant of a person should be removed from the body. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, Paul says, Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, uh, not even to eat with such a one. He's giving us a bit of a sampling of different types of sins that, if unrepentant of, would warrant this. So why is it that a church may not take this action as God commands? What would make us tempted not to take it? Uh, What about even right here at Beaumont Baptist Church? 
I think we would all sit here and go, man, I, I just really hope that never happens here. I just really hope our church never goes through that. Well, in that situation, if we ever were in it, what would make us tempted not to take an action like that? Well, I think if churches and pastors are honest, sometimes they don't want to rock the boat. Oh man, this is, this is going to be very upsetting for our church. Or perhaps the person is influential or has significant status. Or maybe the person has great means or may even be a great uh, donor towards the church. Maybe the church, you know, we just really don't want to be kind of in that uh, judgmentally kind of space. Or the church could be afraid of a potential lawsuit. Those risks are nothing compared to the risks that God brings up in this text. One is the man himself and his eternal salvation, his own well-being. And two, as we'll see next week, it's actually the church's purity. Those are not things that, that, that are worth risking. And so the need for this action is clear. Second teaching, the setting for this action is a corporate church gathering. In verse 4, Paul says to do this when you are assembled. And that's a very important phrase. It's a simple phrase, but very important, indicating that the whole church is to take this action. Uh, this action is not done by an individual or by the elders or by the lead pastor in some kind of counseling setting. This is the action of the body. And that is very intentional uh, in God's design. God has designed this so that no one can excuse himself from this. He puts us in a position where we all actually have to take a side. No one has the luxury of, you know what, I'm just going to kind of step back and be neutral here and kind of let this play out. This isn't really my thing. No one has this, this luxury. Uh, it's uncomfortable, but it's needed, and it's a whole church thing. Third teaching, the authority for this action comes from Jesus Christ. I think it would be easy with what's going on in Corinth or another church dis discipline situation to say, hey, you know what, uh, is this really like my place? What people do on their own time, and it is, that's their own business. And in fact, I'm just another sinner. In fact, I'm battling my own sin right now. Like, who am I to step in here and act with the church in this authoritative way? Make this authoritative decision. Well, look at verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. The church is to gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to take this action with the power of our Lord Jesus. That language of doing this in the name of Jesus is very, very important because to do something in someone's name is actually to act with that person's power and authority. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he expects the body to take action in his name. And the action of the body comes from the authority of its head. 
So what the head wants, the body is to do. In fact, the body must do. In New Testament times, uh, there were often very wealthy people who had servants and managers of their household. And if that very wealthy person was to go on a holiday or go on a long trip or travel somewhere, they may have this large estate, this whole operation, and they're not going to be there. And so perhaps they would appoint a, a manager, a steward of the house to carry on business for them while they were away. And a steward could then carry on that business in the name of his master. In other words, with the master's authority. And that's what's going on here. This is something that the master has said, in my authority, this needs to be done. And we are to carry on the master's business. And so even though we may feel very uncomfortable, if our master says this needs to be done, then it's to be done. On his authority. Teaching number four. The description of this action is extremely, extremely startling. The action that God commands the church to take. Is to remove this man from the body. But in verse five. That action is described in a very, very, very uncomfortable way. With this language. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Whoa. I mean, that, how, that is really serious. What does it mean? Well, there, you could have kind of a, uh, at a minimum sort of view and, and a maximum sort of view. The minimum view idea, the basic idea is that the church removes this man from the sphere of Christian fellowship and turns him back out into Satan's sphere or Satan's domain. Remember 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 calls Satan the God of this world. Satan has a domain. And it's the world. He's the prince of the power of the air. That's his kingdom. Intimacy with sin means that you cannot have intimacy with, with Christ's body. The church. And delivering someone to Satan is an expression that communicates the loss of, of those Christian privileges. That's kind of the minimum idea that he's being removed from Christian fellowship and pushed back into Satan's sphere. But there's also more of a maximum view. The maximum view is the idea that the unrepentant person is basically put straight into Satan's hands by the church for Satan to actively work that person over. The idea of on the minimum side, just out there into Satan's realm or on the maximum side, right there into Satan's hands. That's a big deal. The language of delivering a person to Satan is a reminder of the danger of indifference to sin and a reminder of the demand that God places on us to be holy. Fifth teaching, the anticipated result of this action is the destruction of the person's flesh. Look at verse five. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What does that mean? The destruction of the flesh. What does it refer to? And again, here you have a couple of common views. Uh, one view would be, we might call it the, the spiritual view. The, this view understands the flesh as that unredeemable part of man that does not want what God wants. Galatians 5 talks about the flesh and the spirit uh, being at odds against one another. That's one way that flesh could be interpreted here. 
And the hope would be that by sending this man back out into the world, out there into Satan's domain, that that chastening would actually bring him to the point of repentance where he turns away in brokenness from, from his fleshly desire. I've been chastened from that. But the potential difficulty with the language of that view is that this thing we call the flesh doesn't get destroyed this side of heaven. As you journey throughout your Christian life, there is no such thing as the destruction of the flesh. You will battle it your whole Christian life. You're told to put it to death. But until Christ returns and you behold him face to face, that's going to be an ongoing war. It's unredeemable, your flesh. And so there's another view, and we could call it the physical view, that understands the flesh as a reference to his physical body. And the church would take this action with the anticipated result that in Satan's realm, uh, this man's physical body will be broken. And this, this man may even be led towards the grave itself. Personally, I don't necessarily see the spiritual view and the physical view as mutually exclusive, that you could have kind of both of those things happening simultaneously. But what's being described in this text is a really big deal. Um, God talked with Israel about one of the greatest punishments Israel could receive was actually for God to, to step back from them and let them have their own lusts, let them have their own desires. God had some things to say in the Psalms to Israel about that. I let you have your own lust. I just let you have what you want. There are a few things that could be more dangerous than that. What is the goal of all this? Teaching number six, extremely important. The ultimate purpose of this action is the person's eternal salvation. Look at verse five again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a reference to the final day of judgment. Often in the Old Testament it referred to, uh, it was this overarching title for many, many end time events. But it would reference the final day of judgment. And this action is taken by the church to the restore the sinning man to God, so that he might be prepared to stand before the Lord. The aim of church discipline is remedial. The aim is restoration. The goal is to see this man repent and return back to the Lord and return back to God's people, the church, and and, and a right fellowship, a right relationship with them. I think a helpful analogy is a father or mother disciplining his or her son. Uh, As a parent, the end goal of disciplining your child is not punishment. And if you have that mentality, it's wrong. There's much more to the picture. But that's often the world's approach. It would be something like this. Parents in anger say, you did something wrong, so there's going to be a price to pay, punishment, end of story. Does that sound like bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Does that sound like what the Bible does with us? Uh, the, The text we looked at, Last week, the Bible's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That God's not just in the business of of telling us where we went wrong and punishing us. Kaboom, it's over. No, the scriptures themselves are always pointing us back to the path and and how to walk it. And that would be how a godly parent would parent their child. 
a godly father may take some very, very unpleasant actions towards his son. But it's not just to make him pay, end of story, glad we got that over with. No, it's actually to correct him and restore him back to the path, to the right road. And that's what's going on with church discipline. It's not this punitive action intended to make a person pay. It's actually a very, very painful, corrective action intended to restore. And if the grieving, if there's not the grieving going on on the church's side that's talked about in, in verse 2, then there's probably something wrong with the process. This should grieve the body. A church must remove evil members from its midst. And next week we'll see the theological basis for doing that. And we'll see how important it is for the church to be pure. But perhaps today, though, looking at what we've looked at, I could just ask you a few questions. Do you feel the heaviness and seriousness of sin? In a text like this, again, it's not Psalm 23. This is not like, yeah, I feel really good about that sermon. No, like probably if we were just picking a random text each Sunday, we wouldn't pick this one. But working through a book, we come to texts like this. And I think one of the purposes of these texts is actually to remind the whole body of the seriousness and the weight of sin. We have a huge temptation to take our sin and the sin of those we love lightly. We want to excuse it away and and, and somehow make it okay. And yet God views it with great, great seriousness and sobriety. Do you feel the heaviness and seriousness of sin? And as I already asked you, is there anything that you need to make right because you're in sin? And you know, God has actually given you a window to repent. God wants to restore you back to the right road and to the path. Take that window. And just a question here for everyone is, is there anyone in this body that you need to go lovingly and humbly talk to because you know they're in sin? Or because you may not know for sure, but you think there's a very good likelihood of that and you're concerned for your brother and think they might be in sin. I think in a healthy church, the first couple steps of church discipline, what Matthew chapter 18 describes, those first few steps are probably happening all the time and probably should be happening all the time. That this is what we do. That, that we're a family, we're a body, we... we We work through our spiritual journey together. And if you see a brother struggling and in sin, then you come alongside of him and you lovingly, in a spirit of meekness, walking in the spirit, approach your brother with concern, summoning him back to the Lord. And you're going to need other people to do that to you. And and we need each other. These steps should be being taken all the time for us to be a healthy church. And I'm reminded that preventative maintenance is powerful, powerful stuff. God lays out this sequence in Matthew chapter 18 with the hope that we never get to the final step. But if we never take action on step one, step two, and step three, you're kind of like, it's so dangerous because sin is enslaving. And a person may be obstinate, they may not want to repent, and you get there anyway. 
But preventative maintenance is so, so powerful. I need it in my life, and you need it in yours. The church must take decisive action against sin. Thankfully for my younger brother, Matt, uh, he got in for surgery right away. His doctor, or the surgeon, removed his appendix before uh, anything bad happened, like it bursting. I'm sure that surgery wasn't fun. He had a bit of a recovery. But it was necessary, and it was worth it even though it was not fun. By God's grace, I hope we'll be a church that actively battles sin and takes decisive action when that is the need of the hour. Would you bow with me as we conclude?